and welcome to Talking Backstage at Theater Wit. I'm joined by Claire Cooney, Hello. Our, our casting director and head of social media. And we are going to be discussing Admissions, the new show at Theater Wit by Joshua Harmon today with uh, director and artistic director Jeremy Wexler. For those that don't know, the show has to do with college admissions. <laughs> this whole college admissions scandal is making us, it seems like we can see the future, Rob, but we promise we can't. But I- it touches on affirmative action, it touches on white privilege and liberal elite thinking that those positions in those colleges belong to them. So to some extent, this show is more relevant than ever. Here's the brief rundown. How far would you go to help your kid get into college? Sherry Rosen Mason, the head of admissions at a New Hampshire boarding school, thought she knew. Deeply committed to diversity, Sherry had boosted the number of students of color from 6% to 18%. Her dedication is put to the test when her son, Charlie, an outstanding Hillcrest student who had dreamed of attending Yale since he was a child, learns his application has been deferred. Convinced that the Yale decision is based on race, Charlie claims to be a victim of reverse discrimination. As her son lashes out, Sherry is forced to confront just how far her commitment to equality really goes. It's a super interesting show. It's a really controversial show for a variety of reasons. Um... The reviews have been really wonderful so far. Um, we've yeah, been getting a lot of great reviews. People seem to be really excited about it, and that's been really great. Even reading the script for the first time, I just I remember thinking to myself, "Wow, this is like really, really impressive." Like, I mean, there's so many conflicting things happening at the same time in the show that really make you question your own beliefs and your own your own moral standing and stuff yeah. like that yeah. so many times you're like yeah totally i'm on board with you and then you're like what am Wait, i literally no. what am i saying so <laughs> right. yeah it's definitely a fantastic show for that yeah the cast contains uh, some fabulous folks megan jarakis um, Stephen walker indy whiteside judy schindler and kyle curry and they're all super great uh it's a really it's a show that'll make you laugh a lot it'll make you horrified it's gotten a lot of kind of crazy responses from the audience i really enjoyed myself when i saw it and i think it's just it's a, it's a shocking show and it's a challenging show and uh, i'm really excited to dive in and chat about it with jeremy one thing to keep in mind um for our upcoming interview in the play charlie the character who is the son of sherry um he finds out he gets waitlisted at Yale and he goes on a very long tirade one might call it or a venting session to his parents about his frustration with this and in that monologue he explores a lot of things his frustration about a girl in his school that got the job as the newspaper's editor and he did not um, he, he talks about the fact that his friend who is a quarter black got into Yale and he did not he goes on a monologue full of vitriol and, and immaturity and complaint and, and it's a really powerful monologue at points it's very funny um, it's a very controversial mm-hmm. monologue so we're going to at points be discussing that so if you're ever confused about what we're talking about it's going to be generally about that kind of shocking 14-minute monologue. Additionally, if you're ever confused, 
buy tickets to the buy show. Tickets to the show. You'll know what we're talking about. <laughs> and now we're joined by the artistic director of theater wit and the director of admissions, Jeremy Wexler. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. I've never been in our studio before. It's pretty glamorous. <laughs> yeah, we're impressed. we're just backstage, but you know, it feels pretty cool. Um, so what attracted you to the show, and what made you choose this show, and why now? One of the things I do when I read a script, when I read them all, because I read a lot of them, I really pay attention to that first reaction as I'm reading it. And the script was frankly shocking as I was reading it. Like I read it with this kind of mingled sense of terror and glee that I hadn't really experienced since I honestly read Bad Jews, where I thought, this is like an electric rail. I don't know what to do about this play. But I I shut the script and I was like, this really stuck with me. I need to think about this play a little bit. And I then continued to think about it continually for two weeks. And then I called Josh up. I was like, well, I don't actually know (laughs) what the implications entirely are of this yet, but I'm sure I want to do it because I have not been able to stop thinking about the problems in this play and how to present them and how to solve them and what the play's talking about. Was the Charlie monologue the thing that shocked you the most upon first read? Weirdly, no. I mean, Charlie's monologue... Chiefly in my first read, you found funny until obviously he slips into Zighaldum, but it was really the um, character of Sherry, because what I thought was so exciting and dangerous was not whether or not a 17-year-old boy was saying something stupid, which I think is par for the course, having once been a 17-year-old boy. It was really the possibility that the play was an attack on progressivism itself, because Mm -hmm. she mouths and says all the things that you would think should be said. Mm -hmm. And because the play really reveals a lot of the inconsistencies in how she approaches these these ethical matters, Mm -hmm. um, that was the part that I kind of kept thinking was the most dangerous. We're in a kind of period where I am hesitant to think that people on the left can take too many more punches. The theater's job is not to be punching down, right? Um, And I really was worried for a while about what does this mean if we are attacking a lot of the progressives that are currently feeling beleaguered is there an appetite for this is there's a question that people really want to be asking themselves or do we really want to be do, doing cultural reinforcement right at this time and that's that's was my big right because to some extent progressives have a lot more infighting than the i mean i'm sure there's infighting amongst conservatives as well but sure. quite often progressives um, <laughs> at least online in particular you see people that it's like oh if you don't exactly have my exact opinion yeah, then I, mean, I hate you how dare you, you. Yeah. yeah even though we all are on generally the same side your view is still so different than mine that I can no longer accept you and that kind of thing has become, I think, more and more divisive in the age of social media and all this crap. Speaking about that, about what can the left take and what what they should take and how we should examine ourselves, this production received some mixed reviews, particularly in New York with Variety Review, and we're receiving similar, not so much about the production value, people seem to love the production, but certain people really take to the show and think it's a great critique of the left and white privilege and it's a great satirical piece and some people find it offensive. Do you want to speak to that? Yes, so I read the play before the Lincoln Center production. Yeah. So um, then when that launched, I kind of critical reception, which was, again, by and large good. But there was an interesting kind of side cultural critique, I suppose, at the Vulture, where their arts critic went to see the show and talked about the experience of watching this particular production as a woman of color in this audience. And then in the show, for people who have not uh, seen the show, one of the characters has this 14-ish minute rant about 
the conceptual inconsistencies in uh, the way white people think about race and who is mm-hmm. a person of color and who should get admittance. And, and he, this is all fueled by his own resentment and, and kind of white anxiety that he's being cheated out of his rightful slot right. by a person of color, uh, his best friend, as it turns out, in the show. And so, and in the New York production, the uh, speech got a ton of laughter, but then sustained applause. Sustained crazy, applause yeah. from the audience. Despite the fact that this is Lincoln Center, and it ends in a full-on Zeke Heil. Right. (laughs) It's shocking, um, yeah. It is kind of amazing that it happened. And it's interesting because I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that a lot of those people were legit applauding the performance. Right, because it's stunning. It's impressive. Yes, it's impressive, and it's dramaturgically well-crafted to build this kind of tide of release. You're on the edge Um, of your seat. Yes. Yeah. And so... Uh, I don't know, because I did not see that production, but I, I cannot believe that Dan or Josh was trying to make a serious pitch for you know, racism no, and yeah, Nazism. No. I mean, it would not be if it had been in their intent. But the question is, like, what is the audience's intent when they see right. this? What kind of level of participation were they having? And for the author of the Vulture article, she thought that, you know, that even getting on board at this level with these sentiments was a kind of you know, attack. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, was, it was remarkably... Uh, horrifying, and I've subsequently spoke to other people of color who, in fact, worked on the show, who, when this happened, they were just sad that it got this kind of response. Right. So we spent a lot of time thinking about this and working about this and thinking about this challenge. And then um, uh, about three weeks before the production at Studio Theater opened, which again had a similar mm. uh, response, although it was not about the sustained applause. Sometimes there were applause, but there was really a kind of question about, like, you know, whether or not this could be effectively processed and given to a white audience to make them think that they were right. getting a revelatory moment, a moment of truth, and if that was honest, and because, you know, it was the kind of full truth being kind of encapsulated. Right. So uh, that was the city paper that uh, had an interesting essay on that. Um, uh, and so we thought about this a lot, and Josh and I talked about this a lot, because it's in no way was it his intent that the monologue ends with applause. Right. Yeah. Um, but, like, you know, to contrast in Bad Jews, uh, is the character's name Ian? Ian. His right, monologue... Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Liam. His monologue must have been, to some extent, crafted, knowing it was going to get applause. Yes. I mean, it is interesting, in retrospect, thinking about what the response would be if you did the show today. Right. Because yeah. the show is, is a rant about... His cousin, who is a Jewish, but it's chiefly about what a terrible woman she is. He calls him the C-word. It's a very misogynistic monologue. It's insanely misogynistic. Yeah. And it unlocks a lot of tensions that, because the character is also annoying. The person he's talking about is annoying. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And so it got applause, and I honestly don't know if it would get applause today. Okay, interesting. um, All right. I just don't know. I don't think there's something magic you do as a writer to create applause. You can get opportunity to build. But we then as we started previews, yeah. we're kind of watching this. The question is, when is the release? And is a release necessary? Part of the thing that in Bad Jews was gratifying is that that monologue took place later. And the, the audience had this kind of unresolved anxiety about what to do with the character because we'd been spending an hour with her and we also didn't like her, but we thought we should. <laughs> and so having somebody say, I don't like her, was validating and a release for the audience, which then kind of helped them move into the next space where yeah. then they could see that... Because right. the next chunk, we see that she has a legit point. Right. So it's, it's kind of that switch. Right. In this case, the monologue happens sooner in the play. Very soon, yeah. It's the first time we see Charlie. And I really thought that we wouldn't need the release. We hadn't made any judgments yet. This is in the first 20 minutes. Yeah. 
So I did not think the audience needed a release. Right. Um, in fact, I thought a release would actually do a disservice to the, the kind of motion of the show. Right. Because the whole thing is about this kind of act of complicity and, and recognition and how far does it go. And then all of a sudden he's in this space and we think, oh, my God, mm-hmm. is that a space I could get into? I'm, how far away am I from that space if I'm a white progressive? Like, right. maybe not as far as I would like to think. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I didn't want to let them release that energy. I wanted them to carry it forward because it's the start of the avalanche in the play right. in a way that in Bad Jews it is not. So a lot of this yeah. had to do with us working very, very hard with uh, Kyle, who is just does an incredible job. Phenomenal, in this yeah. Sequence, it's amazing. Um, uh, about how to tune this, how to think about Charlie's youth, how to look at like how to, the structure of it. When when is it kind of rushing? When is it kind of pulling back? How are we kind of messing with this? this sense of um, build and climax, how do we want to structure this and what is the audience supposed to do with this energy and where should they place it? Um, We want to kind of place it into the future of the play. It's Mm -hmm. not meant as a kind of like, yes, you're telling the truth, my friend, because the play does not argue that this is the truth. The play actually argues that Charlie is incredibly defensive, has a lot of, of youth and anxiety, and this is the outcome of that, but, you know, not the end result. It's not where Charlie ends up, it's not where any of the characters end up. Right. So, in the uh, Lincoln Center production, because uh, I talked to Josh about the reaction to this, which he was also troubled by, he said they were unable to get the audience to not applaud. Wow. Um, wow. Including that they basically had Charlie hold a Zig Heil pose at the end. Because they knew it was going to get applause? To try to dampen it. Oh, his wow. Right then, yeah. That's right? fascinating. To, to stop it. And it didn't mm. work. This is amazing because I've been to Lincoln Center and I will tell you that there is, you know, my people. A lot of Jewish people are in Lincoln Center. Sitting there, Lincoln Center, (laughs) and the fact that they're applauding this this kid who's in this Zig Heil pose was frankly shocking. shocking. But Mm. I did not think that's what would happen in Chicago. Our audience is different. It definitely hasn't. It doesn't seem like it has. Right, right. And so. But some of this has to do with pacing. Some of this has to do with the. I think you know the idea that there's a hold at the end. At the end of the monologue, all is a mistake. So we kind of jump it and frustrate people. Right. Who, who a big chunk of them in previously just said they wanted to applaud his performance. Yes. Because it is technically extravagant. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 I mean, as the as person who cast him, yeah. I went like, and then I went. Oh no. Yes, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> but like right. my instinct is like, he's my baby. He did yeah. so good. Yes. And then I'm like, wait, no, you know, because <laughs> the content of what's going on is so troubling. Right. And yeah, so it is a weird, it's a weird moment. Yeah, yeah. And so what I want and what Kyle wants is for the audience to just have a, a way to think about their complicity. What parts of Charlie's monologue do you agree with? Because it's not all false. No. Some of the rules he talks about about how people of color are kind of determined mm-hmm. socially are a confluence of a million other factors. And so when you just right. break, break it down to the bare bones, they don't make sense. If you try to make right. it a little simple, they don't make sense. Yeah. They are culturally arbitrary, all in response to genuine efforts to, to make things better. Right. Mm-hmm. But when you actually say, so is this true, is th- and therefore is this true, and therefore is this true, well, the right. answer is no, because it's not a kind of rule-based yeah. system. I yeah. do think to some extent that our white audience members probably are hearing questions in Charlie's monologue that they've always thought themselves. Like, well, well does this person count as person of color? Or does this per-? And questions they've been too afraid to ask, yeah. right? So to some extent, there's this weird, what you're saying is bad, and also a strange recognition of 
I've thought that and I've wondered that and I've never asked that, you know, and that's a fascinating thing. And that brings me to kind of the next thought, which is that it's an all white cast. Um, and speaking about race and it's an all white cast, how did you guys like deal with that? What's the response been? What are your thoughts on that? Well, we spend a lot of time talking about this because, you know, within the theater community itself, the issue of representation has really yeah. kind of emerged to the, the forefront. Uh, out of, I think, two things. One is a real question of, like, whose stories are being told and who is telling them? Right. Um, there's obviously a long history in the American theater of white authors writing about uh, black people and projecting whatever they are on them. Mm-hmm. And right. starting with Uncle Tom's Cabin and moving forward, you know. Right. Um, and I think in, in, in this age where the political culture is working to marginalize all these groups of color and pull them out of conversations of power and of, of control that, you know, everyone is looking to make sure that they have other avenues to kind of express themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that I think that is a legit thing that people have to think through and overcome and, and think about. And so the real question was, what are the ethics of doing that right. uh, um, in a play at all, in a play in Chicago and in a play at this time? Where these are these, these kind of three things I really had to pick apart and I spent a lot of time trying to think <laughs> yeah. about. What does this mean, and what is what is our ethical responsibility? And we can all talk about other opportunities for diversifying the, the rest of the production design team and the production and, and and outreach. But at the end of the day, like there's no denying the fact that there's five white bodies on the stage, right? Um, talking about <coughs> race. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And what we have come to as an ensemble and, and talking about the everyone's own individual relationship to performing this material and working on this material and and what we want to do with the material is that it is, in a weird way, a culturally specific play. Mm-hmm. It is specifically a play about what uh, white progressives are currently wrestling with in thinking When it comes race. to race, yeah. It's specific, and, right. And it is, and, in, and because you're talking about a whole kind of range of wokeness and allyship there, it's not every white progressive. Yeah. Um, it is about people in particular, there's a particular slice of people who have really you know, have not resolved these issues for themselves. And I don't think we'll resolve these issues for themselves quickly. Right. And I do think there's something both fun for an audience and worrying for an audience to see themselves depicted on stage so honestly and, but not specifically kindly. Right. There's not one character in this play that is not deeply flawed in the way they talk about and think about race. Yes. Yeah, Incredibly flawed. But at the same time, the number of people who have come up to me and says, oh my God, this was so realistic. Yes, right. It's right. amazing because that says to me that everyone has had these conversations. I have had these conversations. I've been near people who've had these yeah. conversations. Yeah. I think there's a suggestion that you know, when white people are discussing race amongst one another, which, newsflash, we do, um, <laughs> uh, that, you know, we think those conversations are in some way secret. Right. I think there's there's real power in having those things up on the stage. When we did Bad Jews, we had a similar mm-hmm. reaction from the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, it was like, you can't tell people this is what we talk about. Exactly. <laughs> you, know, you can't have Gentiles come see the show. This is an internal private matter. This The existence of the show, by opening up these avenues of criticism, is itself anti-Semitic. That's crazy. And, well, but also... I mean, it makes I mean, that sense. Way, yeah, like, right. I don't... I don't you know, I was thinking about the, the book quote, uh, theater should afflict the comfortable, but comfort the afflicted. <laughs> um, and I was like, I think this play, interestingly, afflicts the comfortable, but does not specifically yeah. comfort the afflicted. Mm-hmm. And that is where I think there's this tension 
in the casting and 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 the kind of perception of people with the show. Mm-hmm. The, the play is doing one thing extremely well, and I'm not sure is specifically intended to do the other thing. I also think that you know if uh, Josh had put in a black character, then he yeah. would have been in this weird position of having a black character explain racial matters to the white right, characters. Right, right. I don't even know um, how it would fit. Know, honestly, position that he knows nothing about. Well, why should he put Be, those words in the right. mouth of a character of yeah, color absolutely. to give his ideas of right. race, parrot it out, and make some poor actor do that? Right. Yeah. Um, uh, right. And I don't think that means that you know, white playwrights can't write characters of color, but I think in, a in this particular, this plot, right. it's a complicated proposition, right. and I don't think it's one he wanted to specifically address. Yeah. Um, I also think that you know, there's a reasonable case to be made that half these people's problem is that there aren't, they're not actually speaking to any people of color. Right. Um, they are excluded from the conversation. And I don't know what the kind of specific solution is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about what would have happened if, you know, what if Josh were himself a black playwright and had written this exact play word for word? Right. Mm-hmm. That's what interesting. What would be the response? Would be the response because I don't know that would it be it controversial could, anymore? It, I don't, I think, it, I don't yeah. think it would. I don't think it would. I don't think it would have. Or maybe it would be controversial from a different direction. Yeah. I don't know. Right. And I don't think that there's something about the, Josh's experience or even the way he's like looking at some of the, the failings and weak allyship of white progressivism right. and uh, brittleness that certainly any cultural studies and, or black studies student wouldn't recognize immediately. Right. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, that's actually so. an interesting question to pose. Yeah, um, and I, I honestly don't know because that would be some alternate reality. Right, yeah. right. And, and, and the, the whole point is it wouldn't probably would probably be a different show. Yeah, yeah. And we're probably talking about President Clinton in that reality. I mean, who knows what's going on in that reality? It's a crazy place, not like our same stable reality. So <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I don't know, and and I think I think these I think on the one hand these questions are are pretty interesting to kind of pour over. At the same time, I am very conscious of the fact that. If this play is in fact not designed to comfort the afflicted, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know that every play is, but right. this one certainly is not. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we did have to come to terms with the idea that this play is not specifically for everybody. Right. You know, it is one of the stories we tell ourselves in the theater that you know every play is for everybody. You do Hamlet. There's something in Hamlet for everybody. Mm-hmm. And then some people come to see Hamlet and couldn't care less, and they were like, "What happened there?" <laughs> and the answer is every play is not for everybody. Every yeah. play, play experience is not for everybody. Um, weirdly. Play experiences about when they happen during people's lives can dramatically affect what's happening. Right. Um, we had a woman come to see uh, admissions who wrote a the most naked, raw letter I've ever gotten back to us, six and a half paragraphs long. She was a white woman. She discussed her own personal racial resentment about African Americans who worked oh in academia near her. Gosh. She discussed her her snobbishness about academic achievement and what schools you went to, uh, and she said. Honestly, I left this play thinking I have to rethink my entire life. These people are not taking the jobs that right. qualified people should have. These people are contributing valuably to the academic community. They have worth. And she she went a 180 in her worldview in the course of 90 minutes on this show. Does the show do that to everyone who walks in the door? No. But whatever it could, life, right. Walking, walking up to the, to the edge of the stage as the audience member. And sometimes all you need is just get tipped over. Yeah. And that's what, you know, and plays always just kind of nudge us. They're never, like, picking up and says, shaking us. If right. We get shook, if we get shook, it's because we came ready to be shook. That's yeah. awesome. And so... That's cool. You know, I don't know, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know who the play is for. I think, you know, we've had... Uh, I don't know if the play is specifically hostile um, to if you're a person of color in the audience. Right. I think it might be 
enjoyable to watch a fairly funny takedown of some of the hypocrisies that you as a person of color have to negotiate. I mean, one of the things about being a white progressive is we impose a whole set of language requirements to talk about these issues right. that I don't think you know, black activists came up with. No. They're, they're, they, have to, they have to code switch and speak in our terms, so we're all like <laughs> defanging all of these conversations. And you know, they look, it, I think it can lack for a lot of frankness about right. what's happening. Right. And uh, I think they might enjoy that or possibly feel attacked. Or hate it, know. right, yeah. I'm not right. from that life experience. And honestly, I think wherever life experience bring into the space is owned by that each audience member, and the play's going to hit everyone in a different way. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Jeremy. This is awesome. <laughs> All right. As you may have heard, there was some uh, background noise going on in the last, uh, the last part of this podcast. Uh, just a reminder that we are always recording backstage during productions at Theater Wit. Hopefully, in the future, we'll, we'll do our better, our to best to work around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, keep it a little quieter so that we can uh, get a little higher quality podcast for you. Big shout out to Jeremy Wexler for uh, coming on board and uh, talking with us for a little bit. It's a great conversation. As well as a shout out to Josh for letting us use his office for the second part of this podcast. Woo! Woo! Um, additionally, if you are interested in seeing admissions, uh, it'll be running until May 12th as of right now. Uh, hopefully you get a nice long extension. But uh, you can always buy tickets at theaterwit.org or you can give us a call. The box office number is going to be 773 773- Nine seven five eight one five zero. If you have any questions regarding the podcast or any questions about being a part of the podcast, uh, feel free to reach out to us. Our email address for that is talkingbackstage at theaterwit.org. Um, and that'll be in the description as well. Yeah, and please make sure to tune in. We're going to try to do these bi-weekly. bi-weekly. But we're going to try to do this bi-weekly. And we'll be bringing on uh, actors from the shows, other directors. We're going to do like, some, some stuff with the Theater Wit staff. We're going to get to have a taste of our cocktailist at our bar. All kinds of fun stuff like that. So tune in. Um, it'll be changing every, every few weeks, and it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, and once again, thanks for joining us. Uh, this is James Vanderbosch. This is Claire Cooney. Have a good one. <laughs>